tremendously convicted when you hear the truth of the gospel. Either you're a believer and that is the most welcome news ever, or you're an unbeliever and you've yet to enter into the security that comes with knowing the God who created you. The God who intends for your life to reflect the things that he cares about. Now I'll give you some heads up. Last week as we wrapped up our weekend family Bible school, I gave you some heads up that we would not be going back to Acts for several weeks. And we're going to be in the book of Joel. We're going to walk through the book of Joel. So if you find some of your major prophets in your Bible and then start turning to the right a little bit, you'll see Hosea, then you'll see Joel, and you'll see Amos. So if you're at Hosea, turn a little more. If you've made it to Amos, turn back a little bit. And it seems like this uh, little excursus into Joel would be a fitting way for us to remember some things about the good news of the gospel. Now, as we've been walking through Acts, we've been talking about the good news and Pentecost, which Joel actually speaks to Pentecost directly as Peter helps us understand it. But as we've been walking through Acts, it's easy to forget like, okay, well, God is on our side and nothing can stop us and we get excited about this and we should and we walk forward, hopefully in obedience, but not presuming upon his grace and not becoming lax or routine in the way that we worship him. So in light of all that good news and the way that God has promised to bless the church and has blessed the church for 2,000 years, we want to remember in light of all this good news, there was bad news that came first. There was bad news that came first. I took a trip several years ago to the Dominican Republic and we developed a habit of sharing the gospel there. It was a routine that we would introduce them to the good news but not tell them all the good news. And we would say, before we tell you this good news, you got to know something. There's very bad news. And that very bad news is that you're a sinner. That you're accountable to a holy God. That he, in fact, will judge you in your sin. And every offense welcomes that judgment. And we mount up offenses upon offenses and disobedience upon disobedience so that God has nothing for us but wrath in the end. And we have earned this. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just you die at the end of your life. It's a, as the Bible declares, an eternal state where the moth does not destroy, where rust doesn't complete its work. It's always going on, where the fire is not quenched. So as we make this little seven-week trek, minus our anniversary service, hopefully seven weeks, I love studies like this because if I get so far in the sermon and I'm like, well, it's been long enough, we're going to stop here, then we can just make this as long as we want to. We'll just pick it up next week, right? But I want to give you, in light of all the good news of what God is doing in the book of Acts and what God is doing in local churches everywhere now, I want to remind you of this bad news that required, required the good news of Jesus to happen. So a bit of background here. 
The book of Joel, obviously, as it says here in 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, we really don't know much about Joel. A lot of people think he was from Jerusalem, uh, maybe from the tribe of Judah. Some people think he was from Gad or Reuben. We don't really know. There's a, a lot of disagreement about when he wrote, when he prophesied. Some people think it was around uh, 800 B.C. Some people think it was closer to probably 600 B.C. Now, if you recall, our study in Jeremiah, the Babylonian captivity happened in 586 B.C. And so I'm of the opinion that, and I haven't done just extensive, extensive study on this. I just read, and it makes sense to me. Um, I'm of the opinion that, that Joel probably prophesied around the same time as Jeremiah, leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Now, whether it happened in 800 or 600, it doesn't matter all that much in terms of our interpretation. And that's the good thing. Joel's message is timeless for us. It's timeless. And his main message is about a locust plague. Here's another point of disagreement. Let's just get all this stuff out the way. Here's another point of disagreement. Was it actually a plague of locusts that came over the land of Judah in the days, in these days, and he was using that as an illustration to declare the word of God, or was he just talking about locust plagues, or was this an invasion of an army that he just compared to a locust plague? All right, so there's very different, you know, interpretations on this. Once again, we don't want to spend our time wrestling over those things that don't affect the interpretation of the text. So the text, as we can understand it and apply it, is not going to be changed whether we say this is literal locusts or it's figurative locusts or it's an army or whatever. Joel uses the picture, possibly the event of a locust plague, to declare some things about the day of the Lord and the destruction that would come from it. And the good thing is, while Joel, as many of the, many of the other prophets do, Joel spends a lot of time talking about how terrible it will be, but there's always a glimmer of hope. As he says, there's going to be that day, the Lord says, when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And as we learned in the book of Acts, it was Pentecost when we see, at least in partial, that text was fulfilled. People from all over the world were gathered together. The Spirit descends on them, and then they speak in languages, not their own, so that people can hear. They receive the Spirit of God. They're baptized. And then the church is formed. So Joel's words have much to do with the life of the church, but he does give us a healthy dose of the bad news. Let's read. Let's read Joel 1, 1 through 12. I should tell you the, the series. I'm so bad at stuff like this. The series for the seven weeks we're doing this is going to be called Return, a word on God's life-invading grace. And we'll begin to uncover that grace, that concept of grace in judgment as we go. Today's sermon is like never before. Let's read Joel 1, 1 through 12. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. 
Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Pray with me. Father God, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to enlighten us to the truth here. The truth of your righteousness, your holiness, your judgment, but also the truth of your grace. And may we see in the overwhelming pain of this destruction your grace. Work that grace in us. Even now as we look into your word, let us get a glimpse of Jesus and the pain that he endured to make us right with you. We love you and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Like never before, it shouldn't be hard for you to see where I get that title. As the memory of this event passes on from generation to generation, the story is told, we have never seen anything like this before. But it's not just something past, it's something future. And that's what Joel is pointing out to the people of God. Hey, you look to this and you see the destruction, there's something coming that is greater. I suppose that in some way this informs a bit of how a Christian looks at natural disasters. You remember how the world was asking questions when Hurricane Katrina happened. That was a big event in my lifetime, and many of you can point to other events throughout your life that you just say, what do we make of this? And we have to say with Jesus, when that Tower of Siloam fell, and everybody was asking questions, why does this stuff happen? All these people die. And Jesus just says, repent lest you likewise perish. 
It's not really words we're looking for. Time of disaster, natural disaster. But in these events, God has a word for us. Joel makes it clear God has a word for us in the wake of this locust plague. So the theme I'll give you today, God's word of judgment deserves serious consideration. God's word of judgment deserves serious consideration. The very first word in verse 2 is, hear, hear this. And you can kind of uh, remember back to the way that Moses spoke. Hear, O Israel, listen to this, Shema, right? But you also can think forward from Joel's days to where Jesus was saying things like, he who has ears to hear. So we hear that. We hear that call to hear. And even still, some of us are like, all right, well, how much more time I got before he's done? And we better be careful because we might try to excuse ourselves from this text. You may have read through that. You're like, well, I'm not an elder. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not these people. I don't work the fields. Before you try to excuse yourself thinking that you don't fall into these types of hearers, and that's where we're going, types of hearers, realize, realize that kind of response is the response of someone who has no ears to hear. That person has no help from the Spirit, no spiritual discernment, no sensitivity to God. In fact, if we're honest, we all most likely find ourselves stretched between these categories that he mentions. And like he calls these people, we must find our way to repentance. So I want to give you types of hearers today. Types of hearers from the sections. The divisions are fairly natural in my Bible. They're probably in yours as well. The first type of hearer is those with a hopeful heritage. You see this in verses 2 through 4. Those with a hopeful heritage. He says, hear this, you elders. And now this is not elders in the sense of leaders of the people of Israel or Judah. Uh, one commentator, Crenshaw, actually uh, translates that word as old-timers. So as I hear this, old-timers. You know, one of the things that I've learned, as I've hopefully learned a little bit about ministering to older folks, can I say old-timer? Is that okay? Is that, is that an offensive term? Okay, old-timers. All right. One thing I've learned is that when it comes to old timers, one of the greatest joys that they have is to be able to pass on their heritage, to be able to tell the stories of their life so that their children cherish those stories and remember those stories and remember them. No, you can imagine these people that have been throughout their history blessed by God, experienced his mercy and grace, and they've been able to tell the stories of the Exodus. Oh, you should have been there. I wish I could have been there to see what God did to rescue all of our people. And you can imagine how in these days they want to keep on telling those stories. 
storytelling. We have and have had some tremendous storytellers among us, haven't we? Two examples I think of in this congregation are Frank Bost, one of the best storytellers ever. He could tell you a million jokes. He could tell you a thousand stories at the drop of a hat. I also think of our brother Glenn, who's been struggling in various ways with his health. And that brother will tell you stories upon stories upon stories. You just sit, and it's like one of those things, you just get them going. Like you start it up, and you just say, all right, next story. They tell so many stories. It just becomes a part of who they are. They want to communicate God and his blessings and what he's done. But we also know that there are some stories that are hard to tell. But they're going to tell them anyway. And in this case, the call from Joel to these elders is to say, hey, there's a hard story that you're going to have to tell. Here's what it is. Rather than focusing on all the wonderful glory days of the Exodus, realize that there is judgment that is coming. You know this from this locust plague. In my own experience with my grandfather, my late grandfather, who was in the Pacific in World War II, I remember him telling me stories about mainly his brothers and what they experienced, stories that I'm not going to repeat, but stories that for him, they brought tears to his eyes, stories that affected him. Stories that, that became who he is and was. When Joel calls upon these old timers, he's saying, listen, what I'm about to show you is something that you're going to have to tell your kids and your kids' kids. Generations need to hear about this because you know disobedience, disobedience, toward the Lord, earns his judgment. In my generation, we hear stories like of Katrina. We hear stories of 9-11. Those are big, impactful events. Those stories will always be told. In Joel's day, he is saying, don't ever forget to tell them the bad news. Tell them the bad news. This is a story of severity. Now, in the case of plagues, plagues are not something generally that come around and destroy everything. But this is, in this event, a plague that leads to the people being starved. They have nothing. As you heard, they can't drink wine, they can't eat grain, they can't even offer it to God. All their trees, all their fruit are nothing. And so you could see how the exodus becomes a byword compared to the memories of God's judgment. One commentator says, no matter, what, no matter what happens, every generation must tell the next about what God has done. So I ask you the question, what stories will you be forced to tell your children and grandchildren? Now, a bit on locusts. 
You notice there in verse 4, you could uh, break this down to four types of locusts, four stages maybe is a better word. Garrett says, the Old Testament uses no less than 10 different words for locusts and grasshopper. So it's hard to determine exactly what is intended in the different names. It could be life stages, it could be different types of locusts. We don't, we don't know. The point is that there are four stages of locust destruction here. So Garrett says, those who think they have avoided one stage of calamity are caught by another. So those who have ears to hear know that this just isn't a memory, but it's a warning to be passed from generation to generation. And so the mounting effects of the plague are like the waves upon waves upon waves of God's judgment that are reserved for those who refuse him. And we can say those who claim to be part of Israel but do not worship God. The point is the wrath to come is inescapable. And as Peter reminds us, judgment begins at the household of God. So there's a type of here, those with a hopeful heritage, those of you with a story of bad news, and you know the story of bad news, you need to tell that story of bad news. There is judgment for disobedience. God will purify even those who are his. He will discipline even those who are his. Those with a hopeful heritage. Secondly, second type of here, those under intoxicating influence. Those under intoxicating influence, five through seven. Now some of you are like, oh no, what's he about to say? Verses 5 through 7. What we see here in these verses is indulgence, in excess. What they're doing is the drunkards are taking the fruit of the land too far. Wine, okay, wine. They're taking it too far. The same could be said of gluttons or anyone under the sway of worldly pursuits so that they have lost their sober-mindedness and they cannot think clearly. They have deadened their senses to God. He calls out the drunkards as representatives of those kinds of people. Now, ironically, drunkards are the ones who are least likely to be aware of what's going on until it was too late, until there was no more to drink. Where's the next drink? What do you mean it's gone? Now, the picture that came to mind, uh, I know all of you have seen the movie Back to the Future. One of my favorites, a classic. I don't know if you remember the scene when when Marty McFly in the DeLorean comes back to 1985 and he's on the street and there's flames, you know, going down the street and he wrecks the car. And you remember in the park, in the town square, in front of the clock tower, there's a bench and there's a guy laying on the bench and he's like, he's he's a drunk. He's a bum. And he turns and he's like, crazy drunk drivers. You remember that? 
That's the picture of the drunkards right here. They have no idea what's going on, no concept of what's going on. Everything that he could have seen, he didn't see it. He wasn't aware. He wasn't sensitive to it. He had no ability to process the event. And Joel calls upon the drunkards and says, you represent all these people who can't hear from God. Listen. Let's be clear here. This is not just a matter of substance abuse. Virtually the entire population of the ancient world were drinkers of wine. And so this is not Joel's campaign against alcohol consumption. Listen, believers, you have freedom in Christ. But as we're told, Galatians 5, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. Oh, I'm covered by grace. I got freedom in Jesus. I can do what I want. No, not quite. You're immature if you believe that. The focus here is on being deprived of these things that for many had become a source of sinful indulgence. All that you were drunk on, all that the world gave you, is gone. It's cut off. Whether it's substance or status or security from the world's supplies, those things become the source of our sustenance, then we're in for a rude awakening when those things are cut off in an instant. Now you think about a locust, and it's like, well, locust is not a big deal. I suppose our best comparison around here would be a cicada. A cicada, yeah, nasty little creatures, creepy little creatures. I remember one night I was getting off of work when I was working at the hospital, clocked out at 11 o'clock, and I'd go home, and I walk in the back door of my house, and there's some bushes, and apparently I rubbed up against some bushes, and a, and a cicada had managed to attach himself to the back of my shirt. And I go in like I always do, I sit down on the couch and try to wind down, watch Sports Center or whatever. So I go to sit on the couch and I lean back. And as soon as he makes contact with the couch, it's that, that violent buzzing and, and all of that happening. And so obviously I'm freaking out. So right there on the couch, I, I slowly slip my shirt off and I wrap him up in my shirt and I go to the back door and just throw it outside. Now, we think about that, and we, we, can, we can laugh about that experience. One locust might be creepy. One cicada might be creepy. A few might be a small problem. You might run the other way, but a plague will devour with the deadly ferocity of a lion, and that quickly. As he says, it's the fangs of a lion. So don't minimize what God is using here as an illustration. What can we say? Awake. Awake, you drunkards. How many of us are lulled to sleep in the world? How many of us are compromised? How many of us are self-absorbed? How many of us are just wallowing in all the... the 
the prosperity that we have, the, the freedom that we have. How many of us have become so complacent that when in God's good pleasure these things are no longer there to numb our senses to him, we have the painful task of reckoning with God. So when the world's cup is violently yanked from our hand as we are mid-sip, what will we have? I'm afraid that we'll experience the worst kind of withdrawal symptoms. And in these verses, 6 and 7, Joel appeals on behalf of God to join God in lamenting from his perspective, my land, my vine, my fig tree, Jeremiah 2.21 I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Do you understand? Church, God has made you what you are. It's his work. So how can we go on squandering and despising his grace? He owes you absolutely nothing, but he has granted you everything. So now when we look around and we, we find ourselves in a mess of our own making, we must return to him. We must return for clarity. We must return for restoration and for endless grace that he supplies. If not, would our lives resemble the fig tree cursed by Jesus? Withered, fruitless, Worthy only to be discarded in his work. Those with hopeful heritage, the first here. Those under intoxicating influence, second here. Third type of hearer, those with heartless religion. Those with heartless religion. Verses 8 through 10. It really takes an abrupt and severe turn. It says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. So Joel now is applying God's judgment to religious routines that are happening among God's people. And it begins here with this gut-wrenching picture of the sudden and as one commentator says, unexpected death of a fiancé right before the marriage ceremony and consummation. Garrett writes here, the bride is the image of beauty and happiness, picturing joy and optimism. And now here, the bride is not clothed in white. Here, the bride wears black goat's hair of sackcloth, beats her breasts, and mourns the death of her beloved. Do y'all get the picture? This is how serious the loss of harvests would be for these people. The destruction of every living thing. So Garrett continues, he says, what should have been celebration has turned into lamentation. In his image, the betrothed couple were legally bound 
yet not sexually bound. And this is the case with Joseph and Mary at the conception of the Lord Jesus, if you recall. The morning of the priest that Joel speaks of and all those who practice daily religion were due to the discontinuation of the acts of worship. So see, they don't have wine, they don't have grain, they can't even bring their offerings. The basic things used in worship are gone. It's as if the Lord has suspended his worship, putting a stop to their empty religious practices. I know many of you are familiar with the phrase, going through the motions. Isaiah would speak on God's behalf saying, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it is a heartless religious practice. This is why Joel in chapter 2 and verse 13 will go on to say, rend your hearts, not your garments. So the idea is that these people would come for worship in order to Feel some type of way. Does that sound familiar? Go to worship in order to feel a certain way, but then go back to the routine as if nothing happened. And tearing garments was an act of lamentation, but it's clear that God was fed up with torn clothes when what he wanted was torn hearts. True repentance. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. There's something, by way of illustration, there's something I've discovered fairly recently. You may not have heard this, you may have heard this, uh, is called hacking your cry. Hacking your cry. Let me explain this. It's basically a coping mechanism that certain te- certain types of people will use when they're when they're stressed or or overwhelmed or or grieving. And what they'll do is, in order to deal with those emotions and the response that it's evoking. What they'll do is they'll, they'll find something happy to watch. And not something that's just happy, but something that is so happy that it brings them to tears. It makes them cry. And the goal of hacking your cry is to let all the emotion loose. But while you're finding a pipeline toward happiness, to do it. What, what, what's going on with hacking your cry is an artificial way of processing what's going on. It's manufactured in some sense. It's not dealing with the problem. It's finding an outlet to cope. We can apply this here. We go back to the the concept of going through the motions. You realize that you can show up and pray and sing and you can get in touch with your emotions and reach a particular feeling in worship and you can try your best to feel like you've been to church 
You can shed tears and really treat the worship of God like your own personal therapy session. And you can even put on sackcloth and put on a display for God, but he will not be fooled. He will not be mocked. And you know what happens without certain forms of religious activity? When these things are stripped away, you start to see, man, I really have no connection with God except for these self-serving expressions. When it's all stripped away, do you know God? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you enjoy him and delight in him? Or is it a lot of ritual that just makes you feel a certain way? And when God decides that we can no longer lean on our religious coping mechanisms, then we're going to discover just how far our heart is from him. He wants your heart. He wants your brokenness. He wants your obedience. I imagine this is what the disciples went through as the Lord Jesus hung on the cross. We've devoted our lives to him. Now what? Their hopes and their dreams, which were amiss. Their new religion, which was vanished. Their ideas about what could be or should be in the kingdom were shattered. It's no wonder that the only thing Peter could think of doing Going back to the family fishing business. When Jesus died, they were at ground zero. Day one of whatever was next, and they had no idea. (laughs) Stripped of everything their lives had become, yet day three showed them that they hadn't understood, that their hearts had still been darkened, And when they looked upon the resurrected Jesus, all their ideas about religion gave way to the great pleasure of having Christ. And in the gospel and the power of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, Peter and the disciples became heart-engaged instruments in the hands of God. Those with heartless religion, he calls them to hear. Finally, quickly, those in idolatrous prosperity. Those in idolatrous prosperity. Verses 11 and 12. He tells them to be ashamed. Tillers, vine dressers, farmers. The word ashamed here is the word at the end of verse 12 which is dry up. They sound exactly the same in the Hebrew. So you'd be ashamed, you've dried up. This is what happens to those who put their trust in the produce of their fields, the work of their own hands. The farmers and the vine growers are confounded, according to Garrett. All the major areas of agricultural economy, grain production, Horticulture, viticulture, that's vine growing, had been ruined, confounded, confounded. Sometimes I wonder if our prosperity 
rather than being the evidence of God's blessing any longer, is the evidence of God's judgment. At what point does prosperity, from God's perspective, become, I'm giving you over to what you want? Enjoy your riches, enjoy your prosperity. You won't have a part with me. We've explored the idea of prosperity in Jeremiah, along with its deceptive effects, its ability to make us comfortable and complacent, even entitled to the benefits of knowing God. And as the subtitle of our series states, in the Lord's good and perfect work, when those things are taken away, when all the riches are stripped away, when all the perceived blessings of prosperity are withdrawn, we will discover who we are and who God is. To me, that's evidence of his grace. Those who trust in riches and possessions and plentiful harvest will be put to shame. Confounded. It would be a shame to believe that the prosperity we enjoy is evidence that we somehow earned favor with God. Yet would he be gracious, gracious, gracious to bring this remedial judgment, judgment that brings a remedy, a solution upon his people. That he would confound our fleshly notions about him and about ourselves And show us in his grace that we are sustained only by his grace. There is a word for those who can hear. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. As we conclude, we know the answer to all of this. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but... Many of you have not spent time wrestling with the bad news enough. You haven't spent time wrestling with the fact that your life looks like it does because you are rebellious against God. Even as you have made a profession of faith, you can look at your life and see there's so much that carries the remnants of the world. Whether you be the one who only wants to remember the good stories, the one who's living your life intoxicated by the things of the world, or you're the one that's, man, devoted to all your religious activity, or the one who would say, man, I have done well to present God with these things. Those who would boast in their own works, no matter which one you may be, Through these words of Joel, we come to the realization that we have nothing before God. We are deserving of his wrath. Yet he sheds upon us endless measures of grace in his son. And so today, when you consider your prosperity, when you go home under your roof, when you lay your head down to take a Sunday afternoon nap, oh, evidence of God's grace, no doubt. But when you do that today, remember Grain might bring you a little happiness. Wine 
might bring you a little happiness. Your couch, your recliner, your roof, your job, your bank account might bring you a little happiness. But we must declare with the psalmist, Psalm 4, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. If you want to know the eternal, lasting joy that God supplies, you must know this in Jesus, who is our peace, who is our joy, who is our hope. Let's pray that God would be gracious toward us, and maybe that grace would strip away so much of what we put our hope in. If you respond today, you may repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Believer, maybe today is, I need ears to hear. I've lost the ability to hear from God. I don't know what the Spirit is leading me to do. I can't understand God's word. If that's your desperate situation, today is repentance. Ears to hear will respond. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Your word is good. 